A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 41 through 71. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this be the man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord.
a road trip could be a great way to travel. Especially in a country as large as the United States, there are certain significant and interesting things to see that are not close to airports, things like Mount Rushmore or the Grand Canyon. And so driving across the country, for example, provides the opportunity to see lots of different things. And if you ever look at a photo album of somebody who's taken a cross-country trip, it looks amazing, all the different things that you can see. Um, what's hard to get from the photo album, even if you have the photo of people looking very bored in the car, is the hours of boredom, of sitting there doing nothing. And then even the kinds of things that go wrong uh, that could really make road trips difficult don't get captured as easily. So, so the scene of the Grand Canyon could be so beautiful, but you next to your broken down car, um, you don't always capture the emotion of that, 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 that there you were thinking that there's gotta be a gas station every two or three hours and not realizing there are parts of the country where you could drive four or five hours, and then you run out of gas and you think, well, isn't it good? The Boy Scouts told me to always be prepared. Glad we signed up for AAA, I'll just call, and then you realize there's no phone signal, and now you have to walk you know, 40 minutes in the 95 degree sun to try to get reception. Uh, that's part of the road trip. And as we think about life, most of us um, want those kinds of destinations in life, whether it's a weekly you know, this weekend we're going to go to a movie or eat, or whether it's something more significant, a marker like a graduation or a wedding. We have these moments in life that are, are these great moments, but most of life feels like you're just kind of just needing to do certain things that need to get done. And sometimes things go wrong, and that's part of life. We know that, but it's one thing uh, to have, you know, four hours of, of driving from, from here to Washington, D.C., it's another thing to have, you know, 12 to 14 hours of driving up, you know, into Idaho where, where there's just not much to do, not, not much to, uh, to see. Uh, sometimes we go through these seasons of life where it feels like we're just, it's just longer periods of drudgery than we could handle. And I think for most of us, the last couple of years feel that way. Uh, things aren't working as they should be. Things are harder. I talk to person after person who works in places that are understaffed, and so you're doing three jobs but getting less done. Um, and the hope is 2023 will be better, and here we begin, and we have police killing someone, and we have shootings in California, and it feels like things are certainly not getting better. And it's hard not to think that things are getting worse. And so, so how do we keep going um, being encouraged, being productive. One of the things that happens once we get worn out, once we get tired, once we start to get hopeless, once it feels like it's just too hard, um, most of us, the kindness, the niceness, the pleasantness, the joy, the little celebration, it, it wears down. So then what becomes more dominant is the grumbling, the complaining. And that is contagious. It spreads <laughs> to those around us. Uh, the passage we're looking at this morning, we're, we're finishing John 6. We've spent three sermons on it, and it begins so wonderfully. Jesus with this sign of feeding a huge crowd where they are so amazed that they think this is the prophet that Moses talked about. Let's make him king. And Jesus withdraws because he knows they are misunderstanding. Um, but by the end of the chapter, they walk away. And, and an important component of that is grumbling. And so we're, 
Uh, as is typical, for if you normally come here, I have three sections of what I want to talk about. The first is about grumbling and disputing. That's where I want to begin. Um, the sign of Jesus feeding the multitudes was so amazing that he had two fish and five loaves of bread, and he kept feeding till all were satisfied, and then there was even food left over. Um, but then when they come to Jesus, he says, you're seeking me now, not because you ate uh, not because you saw the sign, but because you ate your loaves and you were full. There's something that they want from Jesus, but they're not really seeing what he's offering them. And the conversation uh, goes in, in, in a bad place from them once the religious leadership steps in. So again, in John, the language of the Jews usually signals the religious leadership. There's nobody in this passage that's not Jewish. So they're not a distinct group, but, but John uses that language to talk about uh, the leadership that's now chiming in to debate Jesus. And in verse 41, first, verse 43, and in verse 61, you could see that grumbling is, is part of what's happening. That's, that's the way that this conversation is coming about. And the grumbling leads in verse 52 to disputing. So it seems that not simply that there's a, a group of people disagreeing with Jesus, but, but now they're starting to disagree with each other as he starts to speak about these bizarre things. You must drink my blood. What on earth is he talking about? Now they're talking to each other. The crowd that was grumbling is now disputing. And, and it's that sort of um, decline that happens that what begins with they're seeking Jesus, they're finding uh, the frustration that Jesus isn't who they expect him to be, not yet realizing he's better than they expect him to be. And so because he's teaching something that's hard, um, they're starting to turn against him and then starting to turn against one another. So in the last sermon, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And he's, he's using that analogy. The interesting thing is, uh, in this passage, the message is the same throughout John. I have been sent into the world by the Father. If you believe in me, you will have eternal life. Basically, through all John, that's what's being said. He says that here, but the imagery is, you know, how do you know I was sent into the world? How do you know that you'll have eternal life? I am the bread of life. And the confusion about that is what leads to their grumbling, their disputing, their walking away. But this has theological roots. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, like the manna that came from heaven, it reminds us of a previous period of time. I mean, after all, they say, isn't this the one Moses talked about? Look at Moses, how great he was. Here's a question, Jesus, are you greater than him? You fed this enormous crowd with a meal. But Moses fed a whole nation for 40 years. Are you better than Moses? We want to know. And Jesus says, well, it wasn't Moses who fed you. It was the father who fed you. And and I'm not only better than Moses, but I'm, I'm better than the bread itself. And so he says, I am the bread. Um, but they look back to that high point. You know, you read Torah, you read the, the Old Testament, and what a great figure Moses was. And look at God's provision where they came out of slavery. What do you eat in the wilderness until you get into the promised land? God provides bread from heaven. The word manna, if you read um, the Sally Lloyd-Jones Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, sort of has these jokes about, you know, what is it? You know, they're sort of so confused by what it is. It's this amazing thing, and yet it's feeding and sustaining them. It's this great story. Go back and read Exodus and Numbers. You know, Exodus 15. You know, the, uh, the Exodus, uh, it's it just happened. They're just out of Egypt, and they already start to grumble. They, they're grumbling about water in a place that come, becomes known as Mara. The word means bitterness. But then read the book of Numbers. And the bread from heaven is this amazing provision of God who brought us out and will provide for us. Until a couple of years later, we're tired of bread from heaven. 
Um, you know, in Egypt, there was garlic and there were leeks. The food tasted better. And you were also um, being forced to work seven days a week and they were killing your children. But a few years later, in the midst of the, the wilderness, where we're just, we're hot, we're tired, we thought that we would get to the promised land more quickly, they start grumbling. They turn against each other. They turn against Moses. So, so here's a group remembering. Remember the days of Moses. Remember the days of the manna. And Jesus is saying, oh, I remember. Uh, I'm the bread of life. And now you're starting to grumble again. You're starting to turn against God again. You're starting to turn against one another. It's the same issue. And so in verse 49, he says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died. You know, there are several places in the New Testament, like in the book of Hebrews, that warns us, don't be like that generation. They started to grumble. They started to turn against one another, and they, they lacked faith, and they never made it into the promised land. And so God provided the food that they needed, but it wasn't enough. They never made it out of the wilderness. They were overwhelmed by their bitterness. Uh, they didn't have the faith to trust God. And so Jesus starts saying, but now something different is happening, a new kind of exodus. I am greater than Moses. I'm also greater than the manna. And what I feed you will not only bring you in uh, to a new place, but you will have eternal life. But they're hung up on him saying, you need to feed on me. They're, they're not grasping that. I'm sympathetic. I don't imagine if I was there, I would be any better than them. Um, in verse 60, this is a hard saying. And it is. If you want to find a chapter of the Bible that has thousands of pages of theological dispute, this is one of them on a number of things. But still, when we break bread and share in a cup, what are we doing? we still grumble against other Christian traditions because we can't make sense of what Jesus said in this passage. Uh, verse 61, Jesus starts to talk about they're taking offense. He's basically saying, I am going to give you what you fundamentally need. I'm going to give you life and it's gonna be me who gives it to you. And they're confused and grumbling against him. And that's the story of the whole Bible from the very beginning. Uh, we are turning away from God. We're suspicious of you. We're rejecting you. We're not believing. We're grumbling. We're overwhelmed by our own bitterness. We're fighting with each other. Nothing's working out. And Jesus is saying, now I have come sent by the Father. I'm announcing eternal life. And yet here it is again. That's what we do. We, we get confused. Jesus is greater than our minds can comprehend, but we can't comprehend it. We assume that he's worse. And then we grumble and we complain. So verse 66, after this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So here's Jesus, again, the message. I've been sent to give you life if you believe in me, but you need to eat my flesh. Wait a second. What on earth does he mean by, so we're so hung up on trying to figure out what he means by that, that then the contagiousness of this grumbling, you know what? This is just, we thought the guy that fed us was going to feed us even more. We thought that he was going to be the one that was going to lead us. I don't know. I just want to go home. I'm tired. They walk away. Um, and, and, you know, the danger of this being the repeated pattern for us, the danger of us in our tiredness, in our uh, frustration, of, of bitterness taking over in our hearts, and it, it starts in our own minds with the constant complaining, and then we verbalize it, and then if we could find a community that will sympathize with, it, with, with us, we'll just, you know, create the complaining, grumbling community. Um, two dangers. One, from a religious perspective, is that in order to avoid that, we, we see... Uh, Christianity or any form of religion as an escape, which is to say, let's just not, let's just pretend that problems aren't even there. Let's just ignore them. Let's just, you know, be positive, 
focus on all these good things. And, and, and therefore, we could fail to face actual challenges um, by misunderstanding um, just how faith works. That's one problem, but that's not the problem of this passage. The problem is that we could um, become so focused and consumed on what's wrong that we reorganize reality around that and we're unable to see what's good and right. So where there is goodness, we don't enjoy it. We don't appreciate it. Where, where we can trust God, we're too anxious and suspicious and we don't. And that's something that we need to be very careful about. Again, especially in this time period, I think we're all a bit fragile. Um, it's, it's easier to get us to complain than it is to get us to rejoice in terms of where most of us are at. So we need to be mindful that sometimes that, that cynical voice uh, could take over. And, and on the one hand, like I'm saying, we, we, sometimes religious people just avoid problems by trying to be positive. Um, that's a danger. But, but sometimes we convince ourselves of things like, I'm just being truthful and honest, when what we're really doing, doing is being cynical. Um, and the weird thing about cynicism and bitterness is we construct all sorts of ways to hold on to it that we make it impossible to let go of. So we know we hate it, and we know it's killing us, but we have these things like, I'm just being honest. Um, it's not always honesty. Sometimes it's slander. And, and the Bible offers a way through to say, you don't need to escape and pretend everything's fine when it's not. But you do need to be careful about being so negative that, that you're, you're uh, poisoning yourself and everyone around you. And here are two words that, that come up in modern Christian discussions and are biblical, uh, grieving and lamenting. Um, you read the Psalms. It's, we are not instructed to just stuff it, to pretend everything okay. Why can't you just believe? We are told to be honest. But honesty doesn't look like tearing everything down. Honesty looks like saying, word, we hate this. <laughs> And a community could come together and grieve and say, this is hard. A community could come together and lament and say, we are overwhelmed. We are burdened. And that doesn't destroy the community. That shares our grief. We, we weep with those who weep. It doesn't offend God to come and say, Lord, we, we don't understand. We're confused. We need your help. We are called to honesty. We just need to make sure that the honesty is the, the spirit in us seeking God in faith and not the grumbling spirit that's turning from God and turning from everyone else. And so grumbling and disputing is always going to be a temptation for us. It's part of our humanity. Um, we need to be aware of it. So here's, here's a second thing that I want to highlight from the passage. What I'm calling descending and ascending. So I started with grumbling and disputing. Now descending and ascending. Where do things go wrong? There's a downward spiral. That's the nature of bitterness. You get so upset that it grips you, that then you can't see anything right, you can't see anything positive, you start to cross lines of, of, um, of how you view people, your suspicion of them, how you speak of them, and there's a downward spiral that just leads to, to division. Um, here, of course, they, they, uh, they just saw something amazing. They saw something of the glory of God. Jesus fed 5,000. They, they can't explain how he did that. But as the grumbling begins, they lose sight of the great thing that they, were, they just witnessed or had heard about. And they focus on the thing that they see and think they understand. So verse 42, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? And they, they think, 
we know him, we understand him. And so for him to come and claim that he could give us life, for him to claim that he's greater than Moses, to, to compare himself to manna, what is he even doing? He's a guy from Galilee. Uh, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? We, we think we know him, it's his ordinariness. Now, the interesting thing is, first of all, on the one hand, they're partly right. This is Jesus who grew up with Joseph and Mary. Um, but the Bible actually quite, makes quite a profound claim that maybe uh, they hadn't heard or weren't aware of or easily dismissed, which is actually the conception of Jesus happened also. It was, uh, it was the unseen sign in the, verm, in the womb of the Virgin Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. So when they say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? It's a somewhat true statement, but fundamentally it's not. Jesus is saying, actually, Joseph is only my father by adoption, by, by his stewardship, by his choosing to raise me. Um, you think you know me because you know Joseph, my father. What I'm telling you is you don't know me because you don't know my father. That's the level that Jesus is talking to them on. He said, if you knew who the father was, you would recognize his voice. But instead, you're saying, I could dismiss you because we know your father, Joseph. You actually don't know who I am. And so the conversation goes to where Jesus has come from. Um, and so that's the analogy to manna. The, where did this bread come from? Well, you are a community that believes it came, sent from God as a gift. And I'm claiming I have come, sent as a God, from God as a gift. And so in verse 46, he says, it's not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So Moses, it was in this privileged position. Who spoke to God face to face as Moses did? And that's an analogy. We know by this one time that, that um, Moses encounters God where God shows his back, that the language of face to face is metaphorical. In other words, God spoke directly to Moses, the prophet, in a way he didn't speak to others. Jesus is saying, but Moses himself only saw the, the pillar and the fire. He heard the thunder. He saw the back. But nobody has seen the Father except the one that the Father has sent, me. And yet you're dismissing me because you think you know that I'm just a guy from Galilee. There's a misunderstanding there. In verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me because it's the same spirit of prophecy in Moses and Isaiah and in Jeremiah that is now at work in him. And so if you knew God, you would recognize the same consistent voice. You would see the same consistent actions. But you think you know me because of how you've shrunk me down to the guy from Galilee, son of Joseph, and therefore you're misunderstanding. For us that now have the full gospel story, that have uh, the whole New Testament, the remarkable thing is actually that he was there as a human being, as just a regular guy from a poor family in Galilee. For them, that's the ability to dismiss him. If the claim that he's the very son of God, sent by the Father, conceived of the Holy Spirit, it then becomes remarkable that he's before them as an ordinary person. And I'm old enough that I remember in the early days of computing, uh, where, where an office would have a huge room of their computers. And then you asked, what does all of that do? And they would say something like, we can multiply 10 numbers. You can imagine now, if you could go back in time showing up with a smartphone and pulling out this small device and saying, I've got a computer in my pocket, they would laugh and think, oh, can you add two numbers on that? 
Um, well, actually, I could write a 300-page a, a paper on Austrian economics right now. Siri, go to chat GPT and uh, write me a paper. Do you have a place to print this? Would you, would you like a paper on something else? That would be unfathomable to a group of people that just know, you know, wow, we've got all of this computing power to do today what, you know, uh, what you could do on a calculator. There's a sense in which Jesus is, is so remarkable, and yet before them, they, they have no idea because they're trying to evaluate him by what they know, and they know nothing of what he is offering them. That once you, once you realize who he actually is, if this is true, that he was really sent by the Father to give life, that if he alone has seen the Father, if he is the very voice of God, then it actually says something even more remarkable. The God who from the beginning of the Bible has always been mistrusted, rejected, and has been viewed cynically, condescends to save the people who are rejecting and complaining about him, that he comes into their presence so that as he speaks face to face with them, they could grumble, complain, and walk away. That the nature of our God is that he is so committed to us having life that he will give us what we refuse to take. And so there, the Son of God came to earth <laughs> to come among grumblers, not so that they would finally be impressed with him, but so that there would be a final rejection of God, a final walking away, a final being overwhelmed by bitterness and cynicism, that they would spit upon Jesus and reject him. So in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. That's the difference. You, your fathers ate manna and they died. I am now giving you bread, and I am going to die. But through my giving you myself, you will live. They're so hung up on what it means to drink his blood and eat his flesh that they're missing what he's claiming. I have come to give you life. I'm giving myself for you. I have come down to give you life. And so not only was Jesus letting them know the extent of the, the pursuit of this gracious God who comes to the very people who reject him to allow him to, to be rejected, but his ultimate argument is not, he's, trying to, he's not trying to prove where I came from in the, in the manna analogy. It's not that that's a convincing argument. He's not saying, look, I came from heaven like manna. Do you understand that? He's basically conveying to them the truth. But the foundation of the argument is none of you would come if the father didn't invite you. The issue is your judgment is wrong and you only have the power to walk away. You don't have the power to come. And so how far does the extent of God being in control of this very situation extend? Verses 62 to, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, um, verses 70 to 71. Did I not choose you, the 12, the only ones who are remaining? How come they didn't walk away? Jesus says, because I have, I've set you apart. And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Judas betraying Jesus was not a surprising accident in the plan of God. One of his own chosen and called betraying him was the very outworking of the plan of God. That's the remarkable thing. God says, my people have always rejected me because they're blind, their hearts are hard, they're overwhelmed with grumbling that they can't take anything good that I give to them. So I'm going to give them my son. They're going to take him and they're going to crucify him. And they're going to heap all of their bitterness upon him. And once it's on him and not on them, then they will see the glory of God. And then by my invitation, they will come. 
they walk away, not because Jesus was an ineffective teacher, but because they were blinded by their sin. They're walking away. They'll come back, but they'll come back with the crowds that cry crucify, and they'll reject him. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread, <laughs> you will consume me, you will eat me, <clears throat> but I will give myself for your life. I will be your nourishment. And so he descends. There's a condescension. There's a, there's a humility that becomes humiliation, that God is so committed to us that he's willing to stand before us and have us reject him face to face. But that's the very means by which God wins us over. And so in verses 62 to 63, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. So here they are saying, wait a second, is this the next thing to do? We eat, we eat the bread that you give us, we, 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 we uh, drink your blood, is that the next thing that will, will, will make us acceptable to God? And Jesus is saying, no. The only thing that will be acceptable is if I give myself for you. But you're not seeing the extent to which I'm laying down my life. So there's no gratitude. You don't see my love because you're rejecting it. But what if, what if on the other side of the grave I'm raised up? Would that be a sign you would believe? What if I am seen ascending to the highest place of God? So where you thought that I was cursed by God, you realized I was actually cursed by you. <laughs> but the Father has always known of my righteousness and faithfulness. And so I will be raised up. You go to John chapters 13 to 17, and Jesus is with the remaining disciples. Judas betrays, leaves that meal. He talks about, I'm going to leave you, but I will send a helper, the Spirit. And, and the book of Luke and the, the book of Acts, which tells one story, tells the same story in a different way. Luke chapter one, uh, I mean, Acts chapter one, Jesus ascends into heaven. Acts chapter two, he sends the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And it's the sending of the Spirit that applies what Jesus has done, who died for us, um, that washes away the sin that blinds us so that finally people can see. Jesus says, if I ascended, will you believe? Well, not by the ascension in itself, because it's the Spirit that gives life. You don't need the greater miracle. But once the Spirit opened your eyes to the extent of what I did for you and to the reality that I can promise to give you life and make good on it, it changes people. And what's interesting, you read through the book of Acts, and it doesn't necessarily make this point, but you have to assume some in the crowd who walked away in John 6, at some point in that early days, uh, they came back because now the Spirit opened their eyes. Um, some of those you would assume in the very place where Jesus was rejected and crucified, Jerusalem, is the place where the Spirit was poured out. There have to have been people who were in the crowd shouting crucify, who then heard another invitation, and yet come. You rejected me, but I still offer you life. Will you come and receive it? That the foundation of the church is fearful, grumbling disciples, it's angry mobs, and it's even hardened Pharisees. Isn't it an interesting thing in the book of Acts that the apostle Paul was a leader so grumbled and embitter that he wanted permission to send Christians to prison so he could kill them to stop this movement. And Jesus, who ascended into heaven, appears from him to the heavenly places. If you see me ascended, will you believe? And Paul is struck with blindness. Um, not only are they grumbling, not only are they unbelieving, but you so misunderstand that you hate and persecute me. And yet the nature of me, the creator of the universe, is that I love my enemies and I lay down my life for them. 
And so what that tells us, petty, grumbling, faithless people, there is hope for us, isn't there? God has been rejected since the beginning of time. But God offers us life, and he says it doesn't matter how many times you've walked away. Today, don't be a fool. Don't be overcome by your bitterness. But I offer you life. And so if you return, if you come, if you put your trust in me, uh, I will receive you, and you will have life, eternal life, a different kind of life than you could imagine. So here's the third thing I want to talk about flesh and spirit. I talked about grumbling and disputing, ascend, descending and ascending. Now I want to talk about flesh and spirit. A hard topic, <clears throat> but I think what's important for us to note is uh, John begins, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and then it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there's the incarnation that Jesus, the, you know, the son of the invisible God takes on flesh. He now comes to bring life to us in our flesh. And, and it's natural for most people to think, because I feel the grumbling in my heart, because it is my mind that ruminates, that what I need is an escape from the body. And so that's what we always hope, is that one day uh, either I could get out of my body now in some mystical way, or that God will one day put this body down. But the Christian vision is the vision of incarnation, that in the same way that, that God took on flesh, so the spirit will inhabit us so we live in this weird tension where the old habits and patterns and desires are still there. We're still biological human beings with histories and stories. But actually, the spirit can breathe life to, to bring change, which unfortunately for us happens over time. But it's a change to renew the whole person. We're not trying to escape this body and all of the misfortune from it, but we're trying to be renewed in it. So in verse 44, he says, no one can come to the Father unless... Uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The hope of, of Christianity is not that one day the heavens and the earth and our bodies will, uh, will immaterialize and we will join the divine energy force of some other realm, but that the God who gave us these bodies will, will renew them, that we will be raised up with a resurrection body that doesn't have the same inclination to complain. In the meantime, though, Jesus says, in the same way that I came and gave my flesh for you, remember, you are here in this physical world with your bodies. And so you need to, to feed on me. You need to believe. You need to remember so that you are being renewed and that so you are working in this world to advance the kingdom and my purposes. And so in verse 52, this really hard word, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Keep in mind in verse 47, he says, whoever believes. He's, he's talking about a way of believing a way of taking hold of him, um, a way of, of understanding, a way of recognizing Jesus really came in the flesh. He came in history. He really uh, was rejected. He really laid down his life. He really dealt with our sins, uh, not just the, the desire of sin, but the actual outworking of sin and all of its damage. Jesus came to make all things new. And so his disciples don't yet understand this. They don't understand his teaching. But when he says, are you going to walk away as well? In verse 68, they say, <clears throat> to whom shall we go? you have the words of eternal life. And that's the thing. You don't have to understand if God is present or in what way when we break bread. It's important to grow in that understanding. But if you find yourself saying, I don't understand Christianity today, <laughs> but if you could say, but I don't know where else to go because who else has the words of life, you're in the right place. 
It's the grumbler that says, oh, Jesus is no longer meeting my expectations. I'm going to walk away. It's the person who says, I no longer have any understanding of what to expect, but I'm trusting that Jesus is the place I will find the answers, that that person's in a much better place. And so what do you do uh, when you want to go, when you want to walk away, when you have that desire to reject, or you're just so overwhelmed that you just, you feel like you're in a place where the goodness of God is not going to do anything for you. <clears throat> Here's, here, here are four practical things. One is obedience. Um, it's not, you know, the Christian life is not just a matter of keeping rules, um, of struggling along, but the reality is we need to deal with our desires. And obedience has roots in theology. You need to recognize that the grumbling that's in you and that you're feeling, you need to at least discern it's a problem. You want to do it. And like nearly every sin to a certain degree, the craving seems so strong that unless we release it, it feels like it won't go away. And so that that bitterness, you feel like if I could just, I could just tell other people what I'm thinking about that person, then I'll feel better. Eventually, you'll, you'll learn, actually, you don't, and they don't, and the situation's not any better. In that moment when you're feeling it, the wisdom to say, I just know it's not, I know it's not true, and, and it's, it has to be an act of obedience, and I'm just going to not give in. And, and spiritual maturity is that you're strengthened so that more and more you're able to restrain it. And so part of it is in those moments, just recognizing I could see this is wrong. I want to do what's wrong. I need to resist it. That's part of the Christian life. It's not the only thing. Some people think that that's it. You know, the spirit uh, walked you over the line from being apart from God, being with God. Now it's up to you. Of course, it's the spirit that sanctified, that gives life. And so it's by faith that we do all things. And so here's a second thing. What do you do in those moments when you're grumbling and you want to walk away? Frustration comes from not understanding. It's when you think that you're supposed to push the door for it to open, but it really is meant to be pulled, that you find yourself then, you know, uh, going through, you know, is, did some idiot lock the door? Uh, is it the weather that, the, you know, all you need to do is pull the door, but you think it needs to be pushed and you're frustrated. So much of life seems to be in those moments of frustration, what do you do? Um, the underlining tone of God's sovereignty, God being in control in this passage, uh, Jesus in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It becomes a helpful place when you are at that moment that you feel like I'm not in control of what's about to happen. I don't even understand what's going on. That the frustrated person could sit back and say, but Lord, but I, I know that you do. And there, there's a rest. We don't need to get our bitterness out. We can, we can um, fall onto the arms of the sovereign God who who gave himself for us while he, we were rejecting him. He is now not going to push us away in a difficult moment. And so believing in the, in the providence of God and his care helps us not to be overcome by our bitterness. Here's a third thing. It's the work of the spirit. Verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's the thing was we can have a voice that... <clears throat> you know, that really starts to believe our own internal dialogue. And we are those who are to believe the scriptures and the promises of God. And that needs to be more central. And so the grumbling voice creates, you know, our inner attorney creates an argument that nobody's responding to. And so we wind up coming with an argument so airtight, we can't talk ourselves out of it. Um, to recognize that's a different spirit. Don't allow that voice to be the one that's interpreting that's directing. You don't need to obey that. It's the spirit who gives life. And so if you know God and if you know the Father, you know your desire to destroy somebody is not a desire given 
to you by him. So, so don't listen to that voice, but do listen to the voice of God who says, I will be with you. Uh, on the other side of this, I will lift you up. Uh, there's an opportunity uh, to be faithful and to glorify me. And so, so when we're in tune with the spirit, it's not that it becomes easy because we deal with our own grumblings or whatever other temptations we have. They're there. But we learn to recognize that that voice is not the true voice. It's not a voice that I'm a servant of. I don't have to listen to it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hear the voice of God, and I'm believing that if I listen to that voice, there will be a different outcome. And in the previous um, uh, sermon in John 6, 29, Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So I have come to do the will of the Father, which is to lay down my life. The work of God is that you believe in him whom he sent. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to believe. But by the time you get to the end of John, you realize when he says the work of God is that you would believe, is it's not first and foremost, this is your duty and your obedience. But your believing is only because of the work of God. It's not that God believes for us. It's that in our sin and bitterness, we will not see God unless God's spirit cleanses and removes those things. We will not believe God when we can't see his goodness but we will not, not believe God when our bitterness is taken from us. The work of God is to cleanse us by the spirit. That spirit gives life. And so if you find yourself saying, I don't understand, I'm frustrated, I don't know that I would, would wanna continue, but there's still that impulse to say, but yet I believe God has worked in my life. I believe that there's something true in Jesus. Um, instead of walking away, walk by that spirit in you, the one who is drawing you. It's the father who draws. It's not that you have an interest in Christianity because Christianity is so wonderful. It's because God maybe is clearing some space for you to see something. And so in your grumbling, don't focus on all that's wrong. If God has shown you there might be a better way, follow that spirit. And here's the last thing, abide. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And here's what, where I want to say that Jesus did command us when you gather break bread, take this cup. What do you need to remember? You need to remember no matter how hard this week is, God is going to feed you. He will give you bread that will not only get you through today, but, but will be to eternal life. So what do you need to remember? Remember, it's me. I came in the flesh. I gave myself for you. Break this bread so you understand it was the body that you rejected that is your life. Remember uh, my blood that was shed so that you would have the forgiveness of sins. And so... <clears throat> In the debates, the Catholic Church says he is here physically with us. And maybe the evangelicals say he's not, but we just remember him without making a case for it. The Reformed would say it's the spirit that gives life. We receive by faith. And so that when we take the bread and the cup and we believe and God is present with us by his spirit, we are eating somehow the body and we're drinking the blood of Christ. Christ is present. Not that we've changed the bread that God has changed our hearts. He is with us. We really believe in this gathering. God is with us and wants us to remember he will give us life. So when we break bread, we are abiding in him. <laughs> Don't stop coming to church because you've gotten cynical, but keep coming back as Jesus tells you, gather with my people and remember, I will feed my community. And so we abide. You know, it's interesting. I don't know how many of you work in cafes. <clears throat> um, whenever I want to sit down to have a coffee meeting, I can never get a table because everyone is there by themselves on a computer. I am somebody that would find it too distracting to be productive in a cafe. Some of you find it a great place. You're just able to focus on the computer. And then I 
Note, some of you are maybe more like me that you've got these enormous headphones because you don't want to be distracted, except that I would be like, oh, listening to the music, I would still be distracted. So I stay home. Curiously enough, for me on the subway, I could get a lot. I grew up on the subway, not hanging out in cafes. So there's something about the, the noise and the commotion of the subway. I could actually, I wouldn't dare pull out a laptop, but I could get a lot done on the subway. Um, each of us have different sensitivities to these kinds of distractions. You know, some of you could sit down and people are coming and going, it doesn't bother you. Me, if I was trying to work, I would be focusing there. So I just know I'm gonna try to be productive. Don't do it in the cafe, but on the subway ride perhaps. Um, there's no getting out of these voices in our head that, that say all sorts of things, all sorts of dumb things, all sorts of problematic things. But some of you will know that that grumbling voice is always with you. It's always trying to say, it's not good enough. This isn't gonna work. Um, there's something to spiritual life that, that eventually you just learn to, rec you know, that it, to allow that to eventually become the kind of background noise where you say, you know, the first step is I'm just recognizing this is not of the spirit, this is of the flesh. So I don't need to listen to it. There's freedom. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to note that it's there. I'm not going to fight it, but I'm not going to listen to it. And as we grow, um, some of us are able to actually, you know, some of you can sit down in the cafe and not get distracted. Some of you need to put on headphones. Some of you need to find a different, different plan. Um, when it comes to grumbling, some of us are worse at it than others. Um, but for those of you that have a tough time with it, there, there's progress. In other words, just know that that grumbling voice, you'll learn it's not the voice of God. It doesn't own you. You don't need to pay attention to it. So let, let it become background noise as you try to focus on the main thing. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, you're missing the main thing. I'm here offering you life. And you're arguing about, what I'm, about my words. And you're missing who it is that stands before you. What happens once we start grumbling is we get so overtaken by negativity and the roots are our fears, our wounds, our resentments. All of these things take over that they become the main thing. And the hope is that God is working around us to help us. The gospel calls us to make Jesus the main thing. That's what he's saying, feed on me. I am the food that you need. When I am central in your life, it's not that instantly you're perfect. The grumbling is going to be there. But when I am the main thing, the grumbling is no longer the primary influence. And so the hope, pray that the Lord would take it away, would free you. God sometimes does that. Most of us need to learn to exist through periods where we say, I'm just not going to listen to that voice. Lord, it's the spirit who gives life. And so show me what to do. And I'll do that. And over time, there's increasing freedom. We grow. So back to the road trip analogy. There are some people that so love a road trip, they don't care if they're going anywhere. They just, they like listening to audiobooks and music and playing road games and having different snacks. Um, I think most people are willing to endure the road trip for the destination. There are some people that you get so hungry and you hold having to go to the bathroom so much and you're so frustrated that by the time you get out of the car, no matter where you are, you just don't enjoy it. There's the Grand Canyon. Who cares? We don't want that to be life. You, you, you don't want to exist in such a place that when goodness comes into your life, you can't see anything that's good. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's actually human nature was self-destructive. So maybe you don't love every moment of every life. That's okay. But God is going to do things that are good and, and take them when they're there. And some of you are going to be like, actually, God is so good that every day there's something to be thankful for. I envy those people. Uh, share it with us if that's you. Um, but, but we're a community of people that God is taking us somewhere. And it's not always fun. But God's with us, and God will lead us, and along the way, he will bless us. So make that the main thing. Stay focused on Christ. 
and the other things will be there. Just don't let them dominate your life. We're committed to Christ, not to our own bitterness. Um, feed on him. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as you continually welcome those who walk away, those who grumble, those who misunderstand, we assume that today that we need that grace and forgiveness, even as we gather. Even as we gather, saying we're here to remember you, we bring our own, our own fears, our own concerns, our own resentments, our own wounds. Lord, but we do so because you have made yourself known as a healer, as a repairer, as one who gives the spirit that is life. Lord, help us all in this hard period not to be given over to our tiredness and our fears and our concerns and the failings of our lives and our world, that we would miss the grace that's present with us. But we pray instead that your spirit would give us strength so that we would go back into the world um, faithful to you, pleasing in your sight, and making sure that it's your spirit that we're feeding on, that we're, that we're remembering the gospel. Uh, Lord, and help us as a church uh, in a period of time when the, when the country's turning against one another, uh, not to turn against one another, but to t- turn towards you with greater fervency at this period. Feed us and sustain us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.